You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan will now help us achieve a trance before dinner or after dinner from a trance after breakfast. That was wonderful, Peter. Thank you, Alan. It's a great way to spend a Saturday night, isn't it? All true. I have two old friends who were there at the time. One of them has already assured his children that that's exactly the way it happened. (laughs) And, And the other, who grew up to be a painter, would do it for money. <laughs> do I have to? <laughs> After that? Um, family comes and goes. Old friends come and go. But when uh, a magazine that pays you tens of thousands of dollars to travel to places that you couldn't possibly go on your own, such as Gourmet dies, then you really mourn. So I wrote this essay for Gourmet. Um, about, About six years ago. A trance after breakfast. A little after nine on a beautiful August morning, after our breakfast of fresh papaya and astringent lemon ginger tea on a nearby hotel balcony, A man just about 10 feet in front of me, one of eight men in a long row, took a dagger by the hilt in both hands and plunged it into his chest just above his heart. Except the point didn't puncture his flesh. He tried and tried, worked it and worked it while I sat squirming, I have to say, nearly writhing in my front row seat at the small outdoor pavilion. A gamelan orchestra, all 16 players, made their otherworldly music, a skein of pongs and chongs they beat out with fancy hammers on their marimba-like instruments, with a few flutes accompanying, and a master gong that set the major intervals with austere, reverberating bongs, which taken together sounded something like the Lionel Hampton Orchestra on LSD, <laughs> while the front line of Chris dancers, as they're called after the name of their daggers, the Chris knife, kept on trying to penetrate their chests, to no avail. These men, Hindu priests, bare-chested, barefoot, and wearing the ubiquitous sarong, were lost in a trance, an altered state induced by a series of prayers and offerings to the gods. And so in my own way was I. The dancers had emerged onto the stone stage in the village of Batubalon, a 15-minute drive or so from our hotel in the central Balinese town of Ubud, which some wag before I had arrived here on this astonishing little island had described to me because of all its artisans as the Santa Fe of Bali. It was the climax of the Morong dance, one of the several so-called trance dances that make up the core of the Balinese religious theatrical repertoire. For me, it seemed like the climax of a long and hypnotic journey across the island that had begun long before we'd actually set foot in the place. Bali, 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 the name had bonged and chimed in many a conversation between me and my wife, a choreographer who, though a stark and wonderful creator of modern dance, had as an undergraduate student at an arts college in Missouri donned a sari and felt as though she should have been born in one. 
She'd studied Indian dance forms with a teacher in Massachusetts and taught for 10 years at the London School of Contemporary Dance and read and read about Asian dance and seen it performed over the years by visiting companies but had never witnessed it live in its local habitation. Bali, 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 that was where she wanted to visit. And so in the summer of our 10th wedding anniversary, perhaps I can can call it now with some hindsight, the last summer of 21st century American innocence, she signed up for a small group tour of the island, a healing arts tour that would include visits to local medicine men, temple ceremonies, ceremonial dances, daily yoga practice, with me, group skeptic, tagging along. <laughs> like most people, I'd been to numerous religious ceremonies in my lifetime, and like many others, had seen my share of dance performances, both classical and modern. And I traveled a bit around the world, but no amount of years as a child or an adult on the occasions of weddings and funerals and holidays and churches and synagogues of various uh, denominations and views, Catholic and Protestant, Buddhist and Shinto, had prepared me for Bali. At first breath, I knew I'd arrived in a special place. The freshly narcotic air outside our hotel porch, embossed with the perfume of frangipani blossoms and tube roses, the old temple wall we walked along just as soon as we arrived at the airport at the capital, Dempasar, the huge statue at the traffic rotary at the airport exit commemorating a battle from the great Hindu epic, the Ramayana, the small temples within the family compounds that we passed on a drive from the beach up into the mountains of North Bali, the skirts of checkered material, black and white for yin and yang, good and evil, and the offerings, the ubiquitous offerings of flowers and incense in every doorway, on every set of steps, in the ledges of the stone shrines that line the roadways, more numerous by hundreds than post boxes along an American street. The little altars everywhere proclaimed that people here at worst elevated what we Westerners normally take to be mere superstition to everyday reality, and at best gave it a good name. From our first hour onward, I went along with it, thinking that I was merely behaving politely. Upon our arrival on a misty afternoon in Munduk, a small mountain village amid clove and coffee and banana plantations and rice paddies, we immediately received a lesson in the construction of these offerings from the sandalwood-hued woman in white blouse and sarong who attended to them for all the cottages on the property where we were staying. Our model was the small ashtray-sized palm leaf box that holds another small leaf cut in the manner of origami and a number of small flowers with a thumb-sized blossom called the pandan at the heart of the arrangement, this presided over by a smoking stick of incense. I threw myself into the work and in my own clumsy way put one of these together as did my wife and we offered them to the local gods on the balcony of our little rice barn-shaped cottage and didn't it work? How else to explain what we saw before us when the mountain mist lifted, the incredible multi-tiered beauty, layer upon layer of light of varying intensity, rice paddies in the foreground with the constant musical accompaniment of the water running in the irrigation ditches that serve them, leading our eyes across a series of palm-fringed ridges that descended all the way to the distant glistening plain of the Java Sea. Dozens of swifts dipped and swerved above the rice fields on the shimmering air of late afternoon, tallying up their daily fill of insects. Off stage, cocks crowed, and motorbikes, Bali's main mode of transportation, sputtered and growled like small dogs meeting at a crossroads. Our days in the island's high altitudes consisted of treks through the countryside that on first and second and even third look resembled something like Eden's own horticulture. Multiple varieties of banana and papaya growing everywhere and other fruit both familiar and unfamiliar and flowers and spices 
jackfruit and mangosteen and avocado, monkey fruit, the infamous foul-smelling and delicious durian, snakeskin fruit and monkey tail, hibiscus flowers and wild poinsettia, taro and cassava and coffee and cacao and ginger, betel nut, areca nut, lemongrass, lemon basil and nutmeg. Rice patties rose in terraced layers up every incline like green wedding cakes waiting to be sliced. Along the narrow roads, spices lay splashed across long mats or on brushed earth, drying in the sun so that the air tasted everywhere of coffee and cloves. Our nights up here saw us tottering on the edge of early bedtimes, giving ourselves up to the romantic intensity of celebrating our anniversary in these surroundings, is where my kids always you know, make the TMI sign, making much of it, and then, but we're all adults here, and then making much of it and falling into the deepest sleep beneath mosquito netting that made us feel as though we were on safari and under the signal care of the tribes of gecko lizards that walked upside down on our cottage ceiling, chirping every now and then as if ordering spiders from some recalcitrant waiter invisible in the dark. Before too many nights passed, my soul settled down like a feather floating toward earth in a windless sky. I'd awake before light, sit up in bed and do a 20-minute meditation and then dress and sit out on the balcony in the coolness of the pre-dawn air, listening to the earliest birds and insects warming up for their sunrise performances. Equipped with pen light and book lamp, I'd read and make notes, make notes and read. After a while, the dark began to drain away like water from a leaking pool, and there it was again, not in hallucination but a view with the same intensity as dream, the rice paddies, the tears of hills, the Java Sea some 30 miles away as the bird flies, at this early hour, just, just catching the first notice that the sun was rising on the other side of the island. If making love had seemed like the perfect act as the night began, yoga in the open-air pavilion seemed right for early morning. Flowing from one pose to another, under the tutelage of the gentle-voiced instructor who traveled with us, it felt as though our shifts and re-anglings of muscle and bone were somehow tuned to the transitions of light and shade as the first full light of the new sun touched a match to the surface of the ocean. While we moved, a priest all in white, loaned to the guest houses from the village, walked silently on bare feet to the shrine at the edge of our pavilion to lay smoking sticks of incense, incense across flower offerings at the base and on the top. Another day, another attempt to ward off low-level spirits of nuisance and harm. Going native is what the old 19th century British imperial keepers of the flame used to call giving oneself over to the local traditions, and it was considered a bit of a disgrace to be caught out in it. But if one of the most sophisticated and at the same time simplest arguments on behalf of Christianity is the 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal's so-called wager, that if you believe in God, you gain if there is a God, and if there isn't, you've lost nothing for the effort, then it couldn't hurt a rather skeptical American writer to return to his cottage each morning after yoga and light a stick of incense as part of his own daily offering. A week later, it certainly seemed like the right thing to do to put on a sarong and temple sash, garments you must wear to gain entry into, the mo into most of the thousands of temples on the island, and take a bracing dip in the purifying waters of the sacred springs at the Tempaksaring temple outside Ubud. On another brilliant sunlit August morning, hundreds of Hindu pilgrims had come to pray and bathe, but there was no great rush at the pools themselves, where the natural springs gushed out of nine demon-faced spigots, seven of these reserved for the living, two of them set aside for the pu purification of the dead. Barefoot 
and feeling somewhat awkward and constricted in my tight-fitting sarong. There are no photographs of me in this piece, I tell you. <laughs> I eased myself into the cold spring pool, but you can buy them on the internet. I eased myself into the cold spring pool, the water coming just to my chest. I trod lightly over the stony bottom, holy carp and goldfish, goldfish scurrying at my approach, pushing aside the flotsam of blossoms and twigs of ins expired incense, making my way to the first spigot, bowing and making the mudra of completion, and with my fingers and hands that I'd learned to use at the end of every yoga session as the ice-sharp water spilled over my skull. If it had only just been my head, I never imagined, why should I have, just how cold life could be in a pool, wearing a sarong, feeling the liquid swirl around my thighs and genitals, and worrying about how vulnerable I might be as the edge of my garment swirled up to my hips, vulnerable to nibbles from hungry fish. <laughs> and the fate that awaited me if I did not make enough obeisance to the local powers and those beyond. I know, just men don't wear skirts so we're not aware of this. I moved from spigot to spigot, splashed and bathed, bowed my head and raised my face to the chilly flow, asking the gods of the place to ward off evil spirits, great and small, to abate the nastiness of rumor, the jealousy of enemies, and give me the wisdom to see my life as it needed to be lived, free of dread and angst, and feeling whatever power I might possess radiating from head to toe, from fingertip to fingertip, brain to heart to liver and knees and guts. That night, we witnessed our first trance dance, the ancient Ketchak or monkey chant. A hundred men, young to old, bare-chested and wearing stripped-down sarongs, gathered around a bonfire with arms across each other's shoulders to perform a chant as hypnotic in its own way as Gregorian song, but in its rhythmical complexity, sounding so much older and essential as to make plain song seem only half the music it aspired to be and as bland as a Pat Boone ballad. And the monkey chanters were followed by a wiry old fellow from the Ubud community whose eyes gazed past the edge of the audience toward some point on the horizon of infinity as he rode a wooden horse into a blazing bonfire, he himself being ridden by one of the local gods, is how the Balinese describe such trances, kicking at the fire, dancing on it, bathing in it, drinking the sparks. Those sparks still sputtered in my mind when the next morning after breakfast we drove to Batubalon to see the Barong dance with its Chris Knife finale. And though it wasn't the finale of our stay on this marvelous island, it marked the time for me when I had to admit just how much I had given in to the spirit of the place. Walking backstage with our guide, I had the opportunity to pick up one of the knives the priests had used in the dance, feeling the substantial heft of it and gingerly touching the sharp point to my own chest. Some of the dancers do fake it, our travel leader said, himself a dancer and the son of a priest, and some have died trying it, and some are exactly what you see. I was mulling this over, mull, 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 the wearing of what the Buddhists call the reckless monkey mind, at the beginning of another trek a few days later. After a rich morning filled with many marvelous encounters with the sort of gifted local artisans that Bali produces as naturally as cloves and coffee beans, and after a drive to East Bali for a lunch of crab cakes and papaya juice beneath a breezy pavilion at the edge of the Indian Ocean, we drove away from the beaches, taking the narrow roads up into the mountains again, on a little pilgrimage to the so-called Mother Temple at Basiki, midway up the slope leading to Mount Agun, the island's most active volcano and one of its most sacred places. 
With the upper part of a gung veiled in fast-moving clouds, I could only guess at the mountain's true height. But geography wasn't foremost on my mind, as once again, in sarongs and sashes, we walked among a thousand Balinese worshippers and then sat with them on the hard temple stones, listening to the white-garbed priests chanting prayers in Kawi, the old Javanese tongue, listening to the tinkling of the small bells handled by the priests, breathing in the mix of mountain air and incense, and putting forward our own offerings, the palm leaf holding flowers, the incense burning. A priest walks slowly up and down the many rows of seated devotees, sprinkling holy water and casting blessings. At last, he reached us. A few drops touched my head. And for a moment, I understood why we had traveled 10,000 miles to visit this site. Turning to catch a glimpse of the fading tapestry of late afternoon, I saw rice fields, palm plantations, and only an hour or so drive down the winding roads, some of the most beautiful beaches on earth, where thousands of Japanese and Australian and European and American tourists sunbathed and sipped fruit drinks and beer and champagne while the tropical ocean beckoned beyond them. And then I turned back to gaze up at the, at the sacred volcano as the wind tore the clouds aside to reveal the physical beauty and hint at the deeper mystery of the peak which had been there, though hidden from us all along. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For a skeptic, you have some mighty incantory language there, my friend. Well, you know, Skeptics are the, the ones who do. Streets of the old neighborhoods in Bali have the same effect. <laughs> we're going to take a brief break, give everybody five or ten minutes to stretch, and then we're going to come back and talk about this wonderful writing and how these men both help us join in the being colonizers of a dream, as I quote Mr. Beagle himself. Oh, Lord, I forgot that one. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs> 